more and more I realized that the two things were inseparable. Um, and especially uh, some of my, and these, I don't think these are like models of the form or nothing, but some of the stories that I've had that I actually took pleasure in writing, I don't, uh, writing is very hard for me, were, were about climbing white bark pines and harvesting pine cones as a tree climber because that work was, I found that work really late in life and I just loved it. And uh, then to bring writing to, to, to try to put on the page what you really love about it, um, that's a real treat. That, that's about the only pleasure you get out of writing. <laughs> yeah. This is season one of the Free Flow podcast a media project of FreeFlow Institute. I'm Chandra Brown, founder and director of FreeFlow Institute. Welcome to the FreeFlow podcast, a show that takes today's best storytellers outside and into their favorite wild places for conversations about craft, conservation, and the creative life. Today's episode is part one of our conversation with award-winning outdoor journalist Hal Herring, host of the Backcountry Hunters and Anglers podcast and blast, and regular contributor to High Country News, Field and Stream, and many other publications. You'll hear Hal read selections from three of his pieces, a personal essay about his work climbing whitebark pines, a short story titled Vacation, and a report about the misguided effort to privatize public lands entitled The Darkness at the Heart of the Malheur, published in High Country News in 2016. The conversation took place on a beautiful September afternoon in 2020 on some public land west of Augusta, Montana, where Hal was cutting firewood and his two dogs and producer Rick White were trying to help, or at least trying to stay out of the way. I'm using these these things that you would never have in the southern hardwood forest, mm -hmm. which is a full skip tooth chain. You ever seen it? No, I haven't. So they have half as many uh, teeth. Oh, yeah. So and you, you can keep them really sharp. It only takes like 15 minutes to sharpen it. So you buy them like that or do you remove buy them? them like you that. buy them like that. Yep. There's enough enough need for them out here. Yep. You buy and them, if you yeah. were to put this in a, like cutting hickory or Shit, something, yeah. you'd burn your saw up. It'd be in like five yeah. minutes. It'd be like, <laughs> 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 but for, the, for, for cutting uh, lodgepole, it's sure. perfect. Sure. Where are we? For the record, in case uh, in case this is the last they ever hear of us, yeah, we're, yeah, we're on the we're on the what's called the Beaver Willow Divide, which is um, east of Bob Marshall Wilderness, and um, this is like my firewood run, and it's getting scarce in here. There's been commercial firewooders in here, and um, but so far I'm still heating the house. But yeah, this is uh, it's west of Augusta, Montana. Nice, beautiful day too. Yeah, you can't really buy this weather, man. It's like un unreal. And I'm trying to figure out. I'm missing my uh, chain tension screw on this ancient Husqvarna. 
how long you had that this all good dates back to when i was actually thin and dirty. really yeah oh, so it's like 18 years old we'll call it an antique yep yeah. and it has uh it's already blown out and my neighbor who's a mechanical genius dropped another cylinder into it and brought it back to life so you you started that you started doing some tree planting back down in, in Alabama, too. I did. Were you, yeah. were you cutting and stuff? Yeah, well? what we did when my parents, when I was 11, um, my parents, they had never wanted to live in, in town. Mm -hmm. And uh, my daddy had, uh, he was a lawyer, and he had, he had some big cases right in there. And we bought a 136-acre place out in the country, my parents did, and we're building an old log, put an old log cabin on it that they redid it's still there and they lived in but um we did timber stuff okay. we like clear cut some things and would replant them we did wildlife restoration stuff and uh we didn't really have to make a living off the, the place and so um we did we did some pulp wood and uh, eastern red cedar pulp to pay for the operations and so when i was in even first year out of high school we were we just did timber stuff with a tractor and some like a homemade skitter type stuff <laughs> and it was it was it was great um and then uh when i was in college my buddy got um he got on with this i can't remember what the name of this tree planting company was they contracted with warehouser okay and there were these huge crews of hodad planters and that's where i learned that which i'm still doing you know um in the fall and uh i run the crew now but uh we were living in all through South Alabama mm -hmm. and all the way down to the north, north, like the Florida line, and then all the way into Mississippi and just planting loblolly pine seedlings on what used to be this beautiful hardwood forest. And so uh, I've written a lot about that too. I, it, if there was any enviro radical that ever, I became an enviro radical. It was, I love the job, but it was doing that job mm -hmm. and seeing what we were doing to this forest. And then we just we couldn't believe it i mean my buddy and i were hunters and fishermen and we just couldn't we couldn't believe it the scale of the of the destruction of those hardwood forests was i mean you'd have to see it to believe it did anybody would even contemplate doing that but it, it led me into a life of tree planting yeah. and uh and it got me out west um how how did it get you out west well so we had our own company based in tuscaloosa alabama called deep south reforestation when I was finishing college in the last in a, and after, and it was really really difficult to get enough labor, and it was difficult. We we were just learning, but we were real tree planters by that time. And uh, I came out to Montana to the Yellow Bay Writers Workshop, and Annick Smith was managing it. Tom McGlean was teaching at it. Um, I think it was. I might have been Tobias Wolf was there. And um, I had read about this, and I'd never been out west except to go to California and and go to college for a, a three months. Um, but I took the train from Memphis, which is like a song. I've taken that train. Yeah, and to, through Chicago. Empire Builder out there. Yeah, that. you did it. Oh yeah, I've, done, it's, I've ever in all those trains. It's world class. It's so fun. Yeah, and and the the trip to Chicago is like. It's like all the people from Mississippi Delta, and um, then you get on rolling out at ten o'clock at night. I think it's ten thirty. It comes. Yeah. Like this. yeah, it's very romantic. Yeah, it's oh, it's amazing. See, and, and it lives up New to Orleans. It. Yeah, it's yeah. Got a song written about it. Yeah, uh -huh. and so you're in, and uh, I came into Whitefish, and around I, we got I got off in Haver. I remember and bought a pint of liquor, mm 
and then I got back on the train, and in Haver, like I've these guys were walking down the street, and they were like, hey, what's up? And I was like, damn, I was like totally different culture. I, I was in a totally different world, and I I felt real good there. And um, somewhere in the night, uh, me and this guy, I think he's a, about to retire. He's a school teacher in Whitefish. I've never seen him again. But he was a real tree planter, western tree planter. Had been in like uh, hoax, hodads, frog skins, those huge tree planting cooperatives that work from the west coast back. And he told me to go. He said, he said, dude, the sky's the limit. You're a hodad planter here. And I got fired off the first one I did. I didn't really know how to do it. Um, but uh, I got a job managing a ranch, and when that ran out a couple of years later, I went back to the woods, and I went back as a sawyer, and I, I worked seasonally as a sawyer for years. Let's do, let me get, let you get some work done here. All right. The current white bark crisis alarms western conservationists. The white barks in another high altitude five needle conifer, the limber pine, or Pinus flexilis, form a cornerstone of the region's ecology. Their seeds, which glisten like bits of ivory colored lard, are a favorite of grizzly bears and Clark's nutcrackers, as well as of the tough little alpine squirrels on which martens, fishers, and raptors prey. The birds carefully pick apart the rock-hard cones to get the seeds, and the squirrels patiently gather thousands and stash them in middens that they then cover with duff, stocked up for the austere winter months to come. Black bears haul themselves into the trees and perch in them, biting cones and extracting the seeds. Grizzlies, not built for arboreal pursuit, simply seek out the squirrel middens, digging them up and eating their fill, devouring the cones whole. White barks are an important food source for Yellowstone area grizzlies, and they also play a crucial role in regulating spring and summer runoff. The distinctive thick bottle brush shapes of these trees and other five-needle pines catch and hold snowfall, and the snow lingers in their shade, melting slowly. When white barks die off, snow piles up on the newly unshaded ground, so that warm weather and spring rain bring chaotic floods rather than the gradual quenching runoff produced by a healthy forest. The familiar image of endangered grizzly bears starving for white bark seeds and dying in conflicts with men while seeking alternative food in the crowded lowlands is only part of this bigger picture. Humanity's role in the white bark crisis is so clear that it seems to beg for divine retribution. But this kind of misanthropy is the feather bed of the modern nature lover, the lazy endpoint of every exhausting conversation about the mismanagement of our world. It is way too easy to be a misanthropist. And it's wrong, at least in this case, at least so far. <laughs> so while we're sharpening let's talk about that time in the 90s we were we were kind of to yellow bay yeah and down in the bitterroot you're you're managing ranch yeah you're doing some side timber work and trail work uh, 
you were talking about writing fiction at that time and and starting to get published and that what how how did that happen how did they how were you just you're throwing blind submissions in i was i did the same thing everybody else did back then which was like literary quarterlies you know sure um and that it didn't really work but uh <laughs> um still doesn't <laughs> i was yeah i know and or you get a contributor's copy yeah but um after you pay them yeah, yeah, pay the poem. I did that with a poem. You were asking me about poetry. Yeah. I wrote a dog poem. Okay. And these people said, "This is an incredible poem. We really want to publish it. You know, send us twenty dollars." And we did. I did. Yeah. I still have it. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I had gone to Yellow Bay and I, I took a story, a fiction story there. I was really into digging ginseng as a kid. Okay. And I took a story there about a man who gets taken away like sucked into the earth like becomes a ginseng root and um by way of course a beautiful ginseng spirit woman right and um that didn't go over well at that yellow bay at all people people had they just didn't they weren't interested in that yeah i don't know if it was good or bad i i still that story is one that still haunts me i want it but um anyway uh that one didn't go over but i had another story about a guy who lived up in Paint Rock Valley of Alabama managing a, a ranch, which I hadn't done at that point. And um, he, uh, they, they kill this man who shoots their dogs, a deer hunter. And this guy and his, his girlfriend. And um, that story actually, that was, and that was very Raymond Carver influenced, except it was set in Alabama. And um, it was definitely Raymond Carver influenced. But you know, like that that time that that workshop, not not McGuane, not Anik or any of those folks, but the people in the workshop, there was even a Carver scholar there, and he really liked that story, right? Um, but so that was kind of fun. But that's what I was obsessed with short stories at that time. What about them? I just the, the ability to con, to distill um, emotion experience um and somewhat landscape into such a short like like a punch you know like a uh, bruce lee punch Mm -hmm. and because i have a really short attention span and raymond carter talked about this i thought this was a place for me you know um and uh, i did publish a short story and i really thought i and i won a contest of short stories judged by peter matthewson and i really thought i i mean i was just like i didn't think i was great but I thought I was on my way, you know. I was—I definitely didn't think I had the world by the tail by any means. But I thought I might could see it from where I was at. Yeah. And um, so I started doing that for a while, and I didn't publish another one for about four years. And the, the second one was a really long story called Vacation, and uh, it was in the Ontario Review. And it, as far as my like any kind of money, like like I worked on it for a long time. And I, I started seeing the limitations of possibly that as a financial. Start doing the hourly math. Yeah, you start doing the hourly math and, and what else you weren't doing. Yeah. Um, but I liked that story. And I had been working in the woods by then. That story was influenced, even though it takes place mostly in Texas, I was influenced by woods work. Vacation. During the oil boom in the late 70s, my father worked offshore on the Halliburton rigs and rig supply boats out of Morgan City, Louisiana. Before that, although I was too young to wonder about it, he didn't work at all. And after he got his hand crushed in a chain boom during the winter of 1980, I don't think he worked a job again. We were never poor. 
My mother stayed at home and cooked for us, and we lived in small, decent rental houses, never apartments or trailers, although the houses were always very much out of the way, sunk into the swamps north of Grand Isle, or on the far outskirts of Lafayette, or once briefly out in the country way up by Monroe. It was a time when there were a lot of families shifting from place to place in Louisiana and Texas, and nobody paid us much attention. My father always said that we lived out of town so my mother could have a garden, and she always did. But, of course, that was not the real reason. When I was almost 14, my father was arrested for the robbery of a small branch bank in Lake Charles. He was caught at a roadblock on I-10, along with two partners who had been frequent visitors at whatever place we were living for as long as I could remember. My brother Sean was arrested a few days later. He was a helicopter pilot just out of the Army and back from the invasion of Grenada and my father and his partners had hired him to fly over an abandoned warehouse and a field of dry broom grass while another of their partners tossed out flaming jugs of gasoline. The fires worked to divert the sheriff and the Lake Charles City Police, but the state police got everything sealed off much faster than anyone had thought. Sean had a good lawyer and a lot of luck, and he got a suspended sentence. The courts were full of adventurous young dope smugglers, smugglers just out of the service, and the judge was fed up with sending them to jail. My father got 20 years at Angola. People who are friends now, a couple of the other teachers at Gretna High School, and a fishing buddy who lives in Venice, have asked me what it was like to live in our family during those years when my father was an active criminal with a gang, quote unquote, and I have nothing to say. My father spent a lot of time at home, and he played with us almost like a brother. My mother told us that he was a sales rep for a company that sold drilling equipment. And that is what we were supposed to tell anybody who asked us. I don't remember my mother being nervous or distraught when he was away. And the one time that she took us out of school and went to live away from my father was when he was actually working for Halliburton. She said Morgan City was full of dope and white trash. And she wasn't going to let us stay there. After that, I was, I came home from doing trails and I got into that game farm reporting. And um, it was a very controversial, really controversial story, local, and I knew people. I had a, I had a rule back then, and uh, if you're at a bar and somebody comes in and sits down and go, man, you ain't going to believe this, you know, then, like, that's what that game story, farm story was like. And it, and, it, and it worked for people who loved to hunt and loved trophy bull elk, and it worked for people who despised hunting and and would never kill anything but both people would would sit at the bar and go tell it and so that story carried me for a long time um and i was making about as much as i made on a thinning contract you know to to write a story of these these reporting it was also really it was really hot like the it was um there was like legal letters and there was trouble big trouble and um I, I I liked that sometimes, and sometimes it was too it was too scary. But other times it was a it was a goad to get up out of bed and make sure you got it right. Um, and so uh, I carried that story, and that got me into field and stream. Is that how you is that how you came around to like learning journal like how to spin a story to multiple publications and multiple you know yeah for sure how to do that yeah. And one of the ways I would do that was um, when you had reported it for say two. Say Field and Stream, that, that Atlantic Monthly story was a culmination of, that was 2000. That was a culmination of reporting on for everybody else. Um, but for a little while, 
I had a way of um, writing three or four stories on a topic, pretty much figuring I had it. I, I knew what I was talking about, and then I could write one for the Economist, which would was like a 700-word synopsis, which is their kind of style anyway. And um, so I was building an income that way, um, and that ended up turning on me like a bad dog because uh, if you're really, really, if you're really serious about writing. Um, you may not know all the same facts or nothing, but the first or second one you do is going to be your soul. You're the you're that's the one you're putting the putting the the soul to, and so uh, writing the third or fourth one then required an enormous mental effort to say again in another way, which a lesser way, what you'd already said, and um, so eventually I I have stopped doing that mostly. Just because of that, it, uh, it the dollars out, but the the effort is pretty grim. Um, it doesn't feel unethical in any way. It's not. No. Um, and also that third story, like like with when I was doing white bark stuff, um, I knew a hundred times more about white bark's work than I did the first time I wrote that story. And so it that was totally valid. Sure. But um, yeah, and I had, and it took me away from fiction. It really did. Yeah. One of the things was I was such an outdoors oriented person, like a, like I was so into fitness and climbing mountains and and then some skiing and, and ice climbing. And uh, I realized that one of the things, so you were talking about process, like how do you write or whatever. But one of the things I did was like I would, my neighbor who was one of my climbing partners, he's called, you revving your engines, you know, you're revving your engines. And, and I, this would go on sometime for days and you're not doing any chores at that time we had a small farm and irrigation was a big deal the hay crop was a big deal the uh, there was a lot of big deals that broke if you didn't work on them and um it would be days where i was waiting to start and it was very unhealthy and um i realized i have never beat this devil really um but i realized at that moment that i i was going to be really unhealthy if all I did was was cycle stories, and and nothing else, and um, that year was uh, I was 37. I heard 36 or 37. My son was born. My son was old enough to talk. But I'll tell you a funny thing. So uh, I got an offer to go collect ponderosa pines locally, and I was driving this 80 Toyota pickup that I thought was dead. I poured it full of 90 weight gear lube instead of 30 weight oil. To, to just somebody told me maybe that'll keep it alive like it, there's so much going wrong in that motor and it made this enormous noise like a track like a uh, like a, a bulldozer going down the road like a track and but it went and so I drove up there and uh, the the pine cone collection was it was very good it was like 500 a day plus um, I could get money up front on the bushels that I'd already picked I was running up trees we were we were just it was a really great job but the night before i had realized that i just was needed some money and i said you know i'm gonna have to go back to the woods i'm gonna have to go back to the woods and my wife said well you know that's not any kind of failure this is a great job right and i said yeah but it's going back to the woods and i can i equated that with failing as a writer and my little boy and i, I don't know what we had done but he had he was mad at me for some reason and he came into the kitchen and he looked at me and he had been reading, he had been had read to him like Hansel and Gretel. And he said, you, 
You will go to the woods. You will go back to the woods and you will live there by yourself. And I was like, <laughs> and then he like ran out of the room. He was like horrified at his own like audacity. And, uh, and we realized that he had, he had been written, he had these fairy stories, right? That to the woods was like being abandoned. It was like, you're, you're done. And, and so I, that actually like cheered me up completely. And uh, I went and that pine cone season was a tremendous success. You know, and uh, I realized that that at that time, I again I thought it was two separate things: woods work and writing. But um, I realized that uh, I was very happy when I lived outside, worked in the woods, and then when when that was done, you'd take a shakeout time, and then buddy, you go into journalism with like both feet. And um, in a way, I've I've never balanced anything. Dude, <laughs> I have never, I have never balanced anything. You're in not my the life. guy to ask about balance. Yeah, life, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, that really, that formula was as close to working as anything I found. Hmm. You know, and also then you sometime if there was a woods work job that you needed to take, you knew um, you would, you could focus on your on writing, and you could literally. I, I used to I had to. It was a, a, a physical stamina thing, though. I used to could build stories over like 24 hours, and and um, they needed editing. But um, I can no longer do that anymore. I write I write paragraph to paragraph now. Interesting. I can't. It, I lose the thread, and the thread's gone until I I think it through and come up with where the thread picks up again, and so that makes things excruciatingly slow you know um and i don't think they're better i just think it's different a different way of doing it mm -hmm. um but yeah that was the that was definitely the woods work deal was going back to the pine cones was and then that guy got those contracts for i went back into that i think i was i was 40 when we got a big contract south dakota wyoming everything and i'd go on the road for um a lot of july all of August and then come back and do white barks in September and then walk away and um I used to tree plant to, through October but I quit doing that because there's no money in it mm. it was that was and I've written about that and the way like illegal migrant labor took over so much of that work while I was in it and um if you if there's a place where like I'm willing to say the uncomfortable thing and I, I kind of got I, I kind of did that in a lot of stories. The game farmer story is the first one. Um, it's because, like, if you're a witness to something, you're there. You do the research about what you've seen, and it's just true. Then you you go ahead and run with it, and that's just the way it is. And it doesn't matter that it's uncomfortable or whatever. Excerpt from The Darkness at the Heart of Mal here, uh, essay published in High Country News, March 2016. What more can be said? I was one of the hundreds of journalists who went to the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge during the Ammon Bundy occupation, and I saw the same things that all the rest of them did. If there was any difference between me and the other journalists, maybe it was that I went there looking for kindred spirits. I am a self-employed American-born writer with a wife and two teenage children living in a tiny town on the plains of Montana. I'm a reader of the Constitution, 
one who truly believes that the Second Amendment guarantees the survival of the rest of the Bill of Rights. I came of age reading Edward Abbey's The Brave Cowboy, George Orwell's 1984, and a laundry list of anarchists from the last two centuries, from Leo Tolstoy and Peter Kropotkin to Mikhail Bakunin and Pierre-Joseph Proudhon, who gave me the maxim that defined my early 20s. Whoever lays his hand on me to govern me is a usurper and a tyrant, and I declare him my enemy. I've read the 18th century philosophers Malthus and Hobbes, Locke and Rousseau. I am a skeptic of government power. I was not surprised when I learned of the outrage over the sentencing of Oregon ranchers Dwight and Steve Hammond for arson. Federal mandatory minimum sentencing has been a terrible idea since its very inception. I am gobsmacked by an economy that seems engineered to impoverish anyone who dares to try to make his or her own living, and by a government that seems more and more distant from the people it represents, except when calling up our sons and daughters to attack chaotic peoples that clearly have nothing to do with me or anybody I know. I am isolated by a culture that is in, as inscrutable to me as any in the mountains of Afghanistan. For love and wilderness and empty lands and birdsong, rather than teeming cities, I risk being called a xenophobe, a noxious nativist. For viewing guns as constitutionally protected, essential tools of self-defense, and if need be liberation, I am told that I defend the massacres of innocents in mass shooting. When I, come to, when I came to Montana at age 25, I found in this vast landscape, especially in the public lands where I hunted and camped and worked, the freedom that was evaporating in the south where I grew up. I got happily lost in the space and in the history. For a nature-obsessed, gun-soaked, malcontent like me, it was home. And when Ammon Bundy and his men took over the Malheur Refuge on a cold night in January, I thought I'd go over and visit my neighbors. Do you feel, in your work, do you feel, what's your relationship to activism and, or, or advocacy and journalism, especially, I mean, in the last three or four years, you're, you're latched onto the public lands thing, right? Yeah. Because um, it's a huge issue that's really swelled up in the last few years. Do you feel like an advocate or an activist? Uncomfortably so sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I used to have a policy, ironclad, that I would not uh, take a position on something unless I'd covered it for a couple of years. And at that point, um, like with the game farms, this is where it first came up, I could say honestly that they were spreading disease and that shipping animals from those game farms for the gratification of people to shoot them inside a fence and pretend they were hunting um, degraded the, the, both the, the hunting and the animals themselves and posed a risk to wild free-ranging animals and the economy and and ethics around that and so after a really long time i i did say i did i think this is messed up i think that this is a realm where actual regulation might be good um but then that's really followed me the public i just i would say on the public lands thing the preponderance of the evidence is what i try to go on and the preponderance of the evidence is that we have this incredible national commons and we should try to keep it and argue over its management and fund its 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 uh restoration and but we have it 
and to divest ourselves to allow ourselves to be divested of it seems to me to be it's it's another one of these things where um i just i'm such a patriot based on the successes of our country and i totally admit the failures they do they don't exist without like like the failures are are, are every it's how we exist how we move forward but um this whole idea that and it's particularly prevalent it's on both sides now is burn it all down and i was like dude have you ever lived in like mexico or traveled in el salvador or been to places that where it's all burned down or it's burned down and then rebuilt in this structure that like nobody wants i was like i just never have felt the luxury absolutely it's a luxury to say i think we should burn this you like burn the whole house down before winter something better will come up well that dude I, the preponderance of the evidence is that it will not you better have a good tent you better have a real tent <laughs> Yeah, and a truck that runs. Yeah, yeah. Be able to be driving south. Yeah. So I just I don't get it. Was there a time in Was there a time in your journalism career, you know, where kind of the, kind of the the flip side of that going back to the woods thing, where you're like, oh man, I got to go back on, or like you're just ready to toss in the towel with journalism? Never really. Um, well, well, yes, and many many like brief instances. Sure. Um, and then I would get excited again about a story. Um, uh, when I worked with your friend Courtney at New West, and um, that was an star- internet startup out of Missoula, and uh, we just they were they worked like I've never seen anybody work like they did, but I did too. And we turned out some we I wrote so many stories, and so did everybody else. But I mean, we were like we were rocking things, and there was not a lot of money, but there was incredible optimism. And um, one of those stories for me turned into a book. Uh, it was a boondoggle. It didn't work, but it it was like in New York City, and you're you're like you know getting going to awards dinners, and there's agents calling and stuff like that, and you're like, I did it, but it didn't work. Um, but uh, at the end of that, I was pretty unbelievably smashed. Like I've never, when that book contract fell through, that book idea proposal, proposal, what it would be, um, it, it collapsed, buddy. I had no idea where to turn. I was, I was like, it was April 14th, you know, and I, I was, um, I can't remember even what I did, but I went fishing with a buddy of mine and he offered me a, a minimal contract for a book, for that book on guns. And I went, I took it and went to work on that. And as I, I, I ran out of, I couldn't keep going at New West and do that too. And um, we, it was, it was tough, you know, it was definitely a dark moment, but uh, I enjoyed the, doing the book to some extent. It didn't make a lot of money, but it was, uh, it was an interesting, and you know, that, that book, it changed the, the immersion in history like that. It changed my perspective for the rest of my life. So for that, it was worth it every minute of it. Worth noting that you already came into it with a tremendous reading of history and literature. Yeah, I mean, it shines through in your work clearly the references, but beyond that, just the intelligence, like the reading and the, and the compassion. You know, I mean, you have you have a deep understanding of literature and 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 history, and I feel like you bring that that bring it comes through in your work in ways that very few people that i know do. i'm glad of that because but that that one is probably a more uh gift for me 
<laughs> because I I just was obsessed with reading since I was little. Like the first book I ever I remember staying up late reading was this biography of James Fenimore Cooper in large print, you know, and I can remember that. And I don't, I don't know how old I was, but like I just was um, reading was just that was that was it. Like like every moment that you weren't out doing something outside. Is it still it? Yeah, for sure, a hundred percent. Um, sometime it goes away for a very short time and then it'll come raging back almost pathologically like like I'll have like six or eight books stacked up and it feels like just like having money in the bank or something it's feel like that you're like 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 you're just like in heaven you know it's a it's a weird it's actually very strange I don't I don't think that it's shared by I, I don't try to share that with very many people because they don't have it they'd rather be fixing their car or doing something practical, you know? Hard to argue with that either. Yeah, it's exactly. Yeah. And you don't. There's no value judgment on it. I don't necessarily think that the obsession with, or what would you call almost like bibliophilia? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I know, I'm not sure that's like something you'd want everybody to have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no. You know? But I remember, I was, I've been, I go on these binges, you know, I've been reading, I was reading John Adams, and, I, and my attention span is too short to the whole David McCullough biography, but I read at it. And then I read the letters of Thomas Jefferson, and I'm with Vaughn Brody, uh, who was the biographer of Joseph Smith, you know. And then I went on this binge of reading about the Mormon church for my public lands work. And um, then I went back, and I went back to fiction, just like one after another. It's like like reading one after another, you know. But um, it was, yeah, I mean, I've never run out of things that to be fascinated, like more so now than ever. It's incredibly difficult for me to do this public lands book because I wanted to be in Minneapolis for the riots. I wanted to be in Portland for the riots. And I, I have definitely come to the point where I want to tell American stories as an American, especially a Southern American who is now old and has actually several decades of paying attention. And um, I don't want to go, I would do, I love Mexico and I did Mexican reporting, reporting in Mexico, uh, but uh, I, I think now we've come to a time where people can stay at home and tell the stories. You know, not that you shouldn't parachute in and try, but um, for me personally, I, I understand this, I, I wanna understand this country. And I, I've talked to people who are overseas doing stuff and I, I, I'll hang up the phone sometime with a lingering feeling like, boy, you should have been in Minneapolis. <laughs> you should have watched the Patriot Prayer guys over in you know in in D.C. or whatever. It was like, so I'm I'm kind of obsessed with America, and I think it's one of the most interesting thing any interesting topics, you know. And so I I don't feel the need now these days to like go to somewhere where they're I mean people, this is what I always say when people ask me about war correspondent stuff. After I started doing natural resource journalism, environmental reporting, um, all the all the stuff I got immersed in, I came to see war as one of the most common things that people do, and that mass killings or, or blowing up buildings. I was obsessed with Sarajevo. I was at a gym in in Hamilton, Montana, watching the artillery barrage on the Olympic Pavilion in the 90s, and I was like, I gotta do, I gotta go see that, you know, I and it. Later, though, I was like, what do people fight over? They fight over dirt. They fight over water. And I was already reporting on those things. 
And so I always considered the the war, which is, as they said, only the dead have seen the end of war. Um, Corey McCarthy has some great stuff on the Comanche, right, in Blood Meridian, um, to whom, you know, war was their, their way with the capital W. And um, I see that as the smoke now. And the, the actual fire burning is like Missouri River, Mississippi River, the topsoil in Iowa, um, population, um, just like the, and population will probably solve itself as we talked about earlier. But, but right now, the transitions into whatever's coming, they're based on natural resources and our relationship with biodiversity because how we we do that conduct that relationship is honestly the truth of it is is what you do to the world that you that sustains you is what you do to yourself and so that relationship with a human beings and nature i'm putting air quotes on it um nature being all of, all of it um that's really the defining topic for me <laughs> And I never get sick of it. I think I do. You know, like nobody's written, I don't think anybody's written more stories on the Land and Water Conservation Fund than I have. I, I would, I don't think so. And buddy, that is not a, that's not a topic that really gets you up in the morning. And But if you look at the effects of that money on American people's lives and the landscape we live in, you, you, you'll get up in the morning and go, holy smokes, man, we got to tell people about this. And I, that's what I've done right, for years. And uh, I can't even remember the first one of those stories, but it's been years. And I don't think you, there's too many people at the New Yorker that really are interested in that. You know? And, uh, and they could do a great job on it. Oh, man, yeah. Yeah, Jill yeah. Lepore would be really good at it. Um, yeah, so, yeah, it's just bridging that divide of, like, how to make people, that's just not a reality for a lot of folks. No, nope, but it is as soon as they go to the park. Yeah, exactly. Or as soon they as they visit know. a poorer town. They don't know it's a reality right. yet. Right. right. And that's the other thing behind the let's burn it all down mentality is they have no idea what it is. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shall we buck this thing up? Yeah, let's do it. I'll get let's this get out of the Utah State Representative Ken Ivory, when he was president of the American Lands Council, famously said of privatizing our federal lands, it is like having your hands on the lever of a modern-day Louisiana purchase. When that lever is pulled, and it will be, unless a majority of Americans know enough about what is at stake to oppose it, we will see the transformation of our country. Federal water rights that underpin entire agricultural economies and that are critical to some of the last family farms and ranches in America will be in play. Few Americans, even those in the cities of the East who know nothing about these lands, will be untouched by the transformation. Once the precedent for divesting federal lands is well set, the Eastern public lands, most of them far more valuable than those in the West, will go on the international auction block. The unique American experiment in balancing the public freedom and good with private interests will be forever shattered, while a new kind of inequality soars, not just inequality of economics and economic opportunity, but of life experience, the chance to experience liberty itself. The understanding that we all share something valuable in common, the vast American landscape yawning to all horizons and breathtakingly beautiful, will be further broken.
These linked notions of liberty and unity in the commons have been obstacles to would-be American oligarchs and plutocrats from the very founding of our nation, which is why they have been systematically attacked since the Gilded Age of the 1890s. I went to the mall here looking for kindred spirits. I found the mad, the fervent, the passionately misguided. I found the unknowing pawns of an existential chess game in which we are, all of us, now caught. Driving home across the snow-packed Malheur Basin through mile after mile of sage with towering basalt cliffs in the near distance, herds of mule deer appearing as gray specks in the tongues of slide rock and wind-exposed yellow grass. I did not wonder what Edward Abbey would have said about all of this, or Kropotkin, or the lugubrious monarchist Hobbes. I thought instead of the old C.S. Lewis books of my childhood, and of Lewis's writings on the nature of evil, where evil is never a lie, because lying implies creation, and evil by its nature has no creative power. Instead, the nature of evil is to take a truth and twist it, sometimes as much as 180 degrees. Love of country becomes hatred of those we believe don't share our devotion, or who don't share it in the same way. The natural right of armed self-defense becomes the means to take over a wildlife refuge and to exert tyranny on those who work there or those who love the place for the nature it preserves in a world replete with man's endeavors. The Constitution, one of the most liberal and empowering documents ever composed, becomes with just a slight annotation or interpretation the tool of our own enslavement. Thank you so much to Hal Herring for leading the inaugural Free Flow Institute River Trip down the Missouri back in 2018 and for being a true champion in the fight to preserve our public lands. Thanks to Nate Hedgie and Wartime Blues for our theme music and to the Montana Arts Council and the Prop Foundation for their support of the podcast. If you like the Free Flow podcast or if you want to check out Hal's podcast and Blast, subscribe to both on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. To find links to the pieces you heard Hal read today, please visit his website at halherring.com. And for information on Free Flow Institute programming or for links to the things we talked about today, check out the show notes at freeflowinstitute.com slash podcast. <laughs>